Romans chapter 6. I want to read the first 14 verses. Let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's Word. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word for us tonight. You know, just for uh, grins and giggles, when I was uh, uh, doing my research for this particular uh, sermon uh, back in the winter, I decided I would Google the phrase, I want a new life. Just sort of stuck the phrase in there to see what, it would, what would happen if he just generated that. And the, the top number one hit, very much to my surprise, was uh, from a site called help.com. Um, now, from what I could tell, it was a fairly simple, I guess, like discussion board, uh, kind of a posting site where you could uh, sort of post your questions and get, well, help, right? Uh, hence the name. And uh, the responses to the question under help.com, someone would actually type this in, I want a new life. I thought it was hilariously typical, the kind of answers that came up on help.com, at least worth us looking at. One of the answers was what I'll call sort of the, the aloof answer. The response was, what's wrong with the one you have? Good answer. Uh, second one is what I'll call the motivational speaker answer. Someone said, hey, don't sit here and tell us. Get up and walk outside and shout it to the world. Make whatever changes you think you need. You expect all of a sudden to be bum, 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 you know, kind of music in the background or something. Then there was the mother response, right, who says, you must be a fantastic person who has people around you who love you. You should know that at any point you can change your life and do what you want. <laughs> can you just hear your mom saying something like that? Then, of course, there was the cynic who said, this world is just hell, so deal with it. <laughs> so much for help.com. 
Then there was what I call the selfish response who said, sounds good, but my life will be the same tomorrow. Oh, Mr. You Planet, we're not really talking about you now, were we? And then towards the very end was what I call the sympathizer. This, is, <laughs> this was their response. They said, you can almost hear them sort of smack their lips. You know, I feel that way all the time. <laughs> I'm in school with loads of debt, which I don't know how I'm going to pay off because I realized a little too late that I really don't want to pursue the profession that I'm studying for. But now I can't quit because I'll only owe a lot of loans. But I also won't have any degree to show for it. And I know that I should just suck it up and finish. But sometimes it gets so hard and I'm just wishing that I was on my own and doing a job that I love. The sympathizer. <laughs> um, I want a new life. Hey, look, let me, I, I read those simply to establish this one simple point. Christianity comes to give you a new life, period. We almost have to establish that from the outset because in many ways I feel like for a lot of people that can't be said too often. I, I think for many people there's, there's a, a vague assumption that Jesus' function in our life is to be something of a sort of simple spirituality juicer, you know, uh, to sort of rely upon, to get me through tough times. Um, no, look, I, I want to submit to you that when you read through the New Testament, you see what Jesus really was about. Jesus' claims were, were wildly imperialistic in the sense that they were coming to begin in the very heart of a person and expand out throughout every area of your life. As the old Christmas hymn says, far as the curse is found. Now, for a lot of people, we're, we're, this is, we're, we have a little problem with this. Um, for many of us, we have a problem with it because we realize that it's just inconvenient. Uh, because quite honestly, I mean, Jesus has been nothing more to us than a crutch for us to lean on. For other people, they're downright upset by it because they really sort of like Jesus being on the periphery of their life because they don't want to be bothered by the life that they want to live. But you know what? I think there's just as many people, though, who are actually very excited to hear the mere prospect because they would love for their life to be different. Because quite honestly, it's not been going all that well for them. Look, y'all, we have tried to make the case this semester that we have betrayed the fundamental aspects of Christianity that we get in the book of Romans by letting it slip in our imagination into the mundane the banality, into commonplaceness, to, to triteness. And what we find out tonight in chapter 6 of Romans is that Paul turns to entertain a simple objection, but then from that objection comes one of the most beautiful and beloved truths of what it means to be a Christian. And it all has to do with the new life. Now look, so in unpacking this, I simply want to throw three thoughts at you. I want you first of all to see the connection I want you, second of all, to see the transformation. And then finally, I want you to see the implications. Okay, the connection, the transformation, and then the implications. First of all, you've got to make the connection that Paul is making with this opening question. He opens up with something that more than likely he had probably heard more than often, where someone looked and basically said something like this. It's hypothetical, but I'm sure he heard it. They thought to themselves, okay, justification by grace means that God does something in you that you can't do for yourselves, no matter how bad I've been or no matter how much I've sinned. Hey, this is kind of a cool relationship. Okay, I love to sin. God loves to forgive. All right, this works for me. Shouldn't I then less sort of carry on in that pattern, right, <laughs> in order to get more of that whole grace thing that you've been talking about? You see the objection. 
Now look, uh, Paul's answer is, of course, of course not. (laughs) Um, But before we get to the reason why I think he said, of course not, I want to throw out just a little thought that I read years ago from an old preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a sort of 20th century uh, Welsh preacher uh, who was a very dynamic, extraordinary uh, uh, Bible teacher. And one of the things that Lloyd-Jones said in one of his sermons on this topic was that you've got to, before you start to jump all over someone who thinks about this objection, be very careful because if they offer this objection, if somebody looks at your life or listens to you talking about the doctrine of justification and walks away from you and says, you know what? It sounds like you're saying that I can just go on sinning and sinning and sinning and Jesus is going to forgive me every time. Don't jump all over that person too quickly because the likelihood is is that they heard the genuine gospel. In other words, Lloyd-Jones says it's okay for this objection to come up because Paul anticipates the objection. In other words, he kind of says to himself, you're not going to believe how good the gospel is. The gospel is so great and so free and so liberating that you're going to be tempted to think that you could just go and sin all you want to and God will still forgive you. Now, of course, that's not the case. But if you have the thought, you likely heard the right gospel. I was enormously encouraged by that thought when I studied it when I was in seminary. Um, but, but, but I want to focus tonight more on the question of why. Why is it that Paul thinks that to go on sinning is totally inappropriate for a person who's been justified? And I think the answer is there in verse 5. And verse 5 is one of those underlinable star, note to self, try for the rest of your life to figure this sentence out. It goes like this. For if we have been united with him, that's the key phrase, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The phrase there is united with him. Paul is saying, and I've been working for years to try to learn how to illustrate this, so just bear with me for a second. Paul is saying that when someone is justified before God, the event is so earth-shattering that it produces a deeply profound yet very mystical connection between you and Jesus so much so that it so much so that it is not unreasonable to think or to say that something that happened to Jesus actually happened to me and that some of the things that were true about me are actually true about Jesus Let me say that again because it takes a couple times for this to register. Jesus says, I want in the act of justification to bring you into something so close and so personal that it's almost as if we can say that my life is your life and stuff about your life is my life. Okay? Now, (laughs) I know what you're thinking. You're going, I don't really know who talks that way. Well, while I was thinking through this and trying to figure out who exactly it is that does talk that way, I remembered a scene from a movie, one of my favorite movies. Uh, I think TBS had it as one of the new classics, um, Forrest Gump. I don't know if you ever saw Forrest Gump, okay? 
Um, but it's a very strange uh, story about this uh, uh, amazing character, Forrest Gump. He has all these adventures, and yet he's sort of um, uh, kind of autistic in his nature. Um, but at a very crucial point in the movie, as it's sort of coming towards the end, um, uh, Forrest is reunited with the love of his life, Jenny, right? Um, Jenny has had a rough life at this point in the movie. I mean, terrible experience that she's been through. While Forrest has lived a life of adventure that sort of boggles the mind, right? Not the least of which included this cross-country jog, actually back and forth across the country jog. You see the movie, you'll understand. But at the end of the movie, they, they get reunited, and they're sitting there having a conversation. And all of a sudden, Jenny looks at him, at uh, Forrest, and says, you know, Forrest, when you were in Vietnam, were you scared? And this was his answer. He says, well, yes. Well, I don't know. He says, sometimes it would stop raining long enough for the stars to come out. And then it was nice. I was, it was just like before the sun goes down to bed on the bayou. There was always a million sparkles on the water. Like that mountain lake. It was so clear, Jenny. It looked like there were two skies, one on top of the other. And then in the desert, when the sun comes up, I couldn't tell where heaven stopped and earth began. It was so beautiful. And sort of looking back over her life with these wistful eyes, Jenny looks at Forrest and says, I sure wish I could have been there with you. And do you remember what Forrest says? He looks at Jenny and says, Jenny, you were. You were with me. Now here's the thing. No one in the audience of that movie theater misunderstood what Forrest was talking about. What was he saying? He was basically saying that all of those times, even though he was separated from Jenny, she was so close to his heart, so dear in his thoughts, that he considered that all of the things that happened to him could very well have been said to have happened to her. She was so close in his heart. It's very interesting that that in the movie, Forrest tells Jenny this little piece of news at a huge turning point in her life. And you can tell how much this this revelation that she has of Forrest's love, undying love for her, begins to transform her and heal her into a great healing. Look, y'all, that's what we're getting at. Because Paul is saying that the act of justification, the legal act that we've been trying to unpack over the last few weeks, is not some kind of cold, forensic, legal exchange only. It's more than that. That there is at the heart of this act a deeply personal union of hearts. Deeply personal. So much so that all of the things that can be said to be true of Jesus are now true of his people. And the things that used to be said to be true of his, of his people are true about Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Look, on the cross of Jesus Christ, God did a great exchange, um, a, a great, we might even call it an imputation. There was a change of something. God treated Jesus as if he was his people. And what did his people deserve? They deserved death. And so God killed his son because he looked at them as if he was you. But Because that happened, God looks at you and now treats you in the way that he looks at Jesus. What is the relationship between the Father and the Son? 
None of us has any categories for that kind of love. Guess what? It's yours if you, as Paul says, are in him. (laughs) In other words, there's this deeply personal union between you and Christ that is so profound that at your baptism, when you were baptized, when you became a Christian, there was a funeral of sorts. But unlike any other funeral that you've ever been to before, because at the end of this funeral, you were raised from the dead. How then, Paul is asking, can you have this kind of connection between you and between Christ and still celebrate sin, to live in sin, to relish and nurture sin in your heart when it's directly opposed to the one who loved you in this way? How can that be? Paul says you can't. (laughs) You can't. Why? Because at your funeral, it says there in verse 7, the one who has died has been set free from sin. Your sin was dealt with. The offense of your sin, that is. So at your resurrection, the new life that that, that Christ had comes to you. You have a new life, a brand new life. Christianity comes and says, this is not about checking a box for making certain that in eternity I get to go to heaven on that good old gospel ship. No. Jesus says, I'm coming to renovate every ounce of your existence. There will be nothing that will go untouched by me, he says. That's the connection. Theologians refer to this as the doctrine of union with Christ. This idea of being deeply and powerfully connected to Christ. Okay, that's the connection. Secondly, there's the transformation. Now, because as soon as I say that issue about this connection with Jesus, people are like, ooh, whoa, whoa, whoa now. I don't understand that, right? Because verse 2 almost seems a little too straightforward, doesn't it? Look at it again. Paul says, how can we who, there's the phrase, died to sin still live in it? Now, the phrase there that trips people up is died to sin. That's the problem. Now, before we dive into what he means, we first have to say what we know he can't mean by that. All right? And a lot of people that make a lot of mistakes when they read Romans chapter 6. First of all, it cannot mean that to die to sin means that we don't want to sin. It can't mean that. Some of you are troubled because you're kind of like, I still feel like I want to sin. I'm still tempted by those things. Well, of course you do. The reason why we know Paul can't mean that is because why else would he be writing a chapter on putting sin to death if you never wanted to sin? Does that make sense? So the phrase died to sin can't mean that. Secondly, I also would suggest to you that it can't mean that, you know, died to sin means that we, we ought not to sin. Like Paul saying, hey, you died to sin. You should try harder, little soldier. <laughs> That's not what he's saying either because it doesn't really seem to get the, the depth of what Paul is saying here. Look, what I think it does mean is this. It's the best that I can do, y'all. Is that the justified person has been taken out from under what we might call the tyranny of sin. That is, that there's a change in your relationship. Here's my phrase. Bear with me. To sin's inevitability. Now, what do I mean by that? Look, I want you to remember our discussion that we had at the beginning of the semester in the first chapters of Romans. Do you remember how we said back then that sin has an addictive quality to it? Do you know what I mean by an addictive quality? In other words, there's a sense in which prior to coming to Christ, 
The Bible describes our condition as being completely powerless. In other words, we were defined so much by our natures that there was no way for us to say no to sin. That's what it means to be enslaved by something. When you're a slave to something, you ain't got many choices. You live completely at the behest of your master. And if sin was your master, guess what? You had one choice, and that was to sin. Ah, but Paul says, guess what? (laughs) Your citizenship, that master, can no longer have and exercise tyranny over you. And I'll tell you why. Because the one thing that the master wants is payment. The devil is looking saying, he sinned, he's mine. And God looked and said, no, because he died, he's mine. Or she's mine. They don't belong to you anymore. That's what Paul's saying. There is no longer a necessity to your sin. In other words, it is a lie. Look look what Paul says there in verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you. It shall not. It won't. In other words, what has changed in the Christian, here it is, this is the point, is that now he has a choice in a way in which he did not have before. Everybody always wants to get wound up on free will prior to someone becoming a Christian. I'm one of the weirdos that doesn't believe we have free will prior to becoming a Christian. You only had will to do one thing prior to becoming a Christian, and that was to follow your master, and that is to sin. However, now, having been redeemed, God looks and does something amazing, which says, guess what? Now you have a choice. You no longer have to follow that thing. You don't have to live under its tyranny. Okay, a couple of illustrations to try to unpack this. Let's think, first of all, about the Civil War, okay? After the Emancipation Proclamation was made, right, slaves in America had an instantaneous brand new status, did they not? Instantaneous, it was the mere signing of a document. Suddenly, they had a brand new world of freedom, did they not? Or did they? (laughs) If there's anything that the last 160 some odd years of American history has told us, it's that what was declared in law has taken decades, and is far from completed yet, to be born out in the hearts and minds of the people who embrace it. Does that make sense? Same principle. God establishes something by law. Sin shall not have dominion over you. He doesn't rule you anymore. But it takes a while to begin to work into that new status. This illustration is a bit more intense, and I apologize for its sort of graphic nature. But it's very interesting to me how the news media from a year ago only briefly reported on the horror story that was Joseph Fritzi. Some of you are trying to think, who is Joseph Fritzi? Should I know who this is? We were all appropriately horrified last year when we found out about this Belgian man who had basically, no other way to put it, enslaved his own daughter in the basement of his Belgian home for 24 years. Now, that's bad enough as it is. But during that time, he had actually fathered a half a dozen or so children with his own daughter as she was trapped in the prison underneath her own home. And to be quite honest with you, an incestuous nightmare that I find it fascinating that even our own news media could not look at for very long, and so it's dropped off the pages. And suddenly to discover that kind of horrific, it was was too awful for us to look at. And in many ways, one of the reasons why I kind of want to bring it up tonight, because we need to look at that. Now look, Fritzi is in prison now, as he should be. His daughter, Elizabeth, is free 
She is free. But what would you say if all of a sudden you heard her say something like, and who knows, she very well may have said something like along these lines, if she told you that she wanted to go back to the basement cave? What if she looked at you and said that she wants to go back to that place where she was held in prison for so many years? You would look at her and say, no, 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 how could you? Don't you understand? Don't you, don't, you, don't you know what's happened to you? You don't ever have to go back to that. God has released us from the slavery. So when Paul looks and says, how can you continue to live in sin after you're justified? He says, how can you continue to swim in this and to celebrate it, to make it the main tenor of your life without any kind of repentance, without any kind of grief, without any kind of revulsion to rebellion. It would mean that you would make no progress in sin. It would be that you would not be able to see God doing anything in your life, even if it's nothing more than making you more sensitive to your disobedience. Is that there? That brings me finally to the implications, and I'll finish with this. What are the implications of this extraordinary event of being that closely tied to united with Christ, that it issues forth in a brand new life, number one. I want you to begin to feel, at least on some level, the weight of God's work with, with you. The whole purpose of the gospel, like we read in the very first chapter, was to bring about what Paul calls the obedience of faith. In other words, y'all, God is absolutely committed to your holiness, that ought to be the most encouraging thing that you've ever heard and at the same time the most terrifying thing that you've ever heard. It ought to be encouraging for the same reason that the book of Philippians is encouraging where God looks and says that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. I know you're discouraged. I know you're down. But guess what? Your sanctification is just as much in God's hands as your justification ever was. They're both going to be by grace. Lighten up. <laughs> But it's most terrifying because it means, my friends, that God is not going to let you have a casual relationship with him. There will be no area of your life that he is not going to look and say, that's mine. And so to make an attempt to have Christ on the periphery of your life is to not be in possession of Christ at all. Can there be any other implication of the radical nature of what Paul is saying? Holiness is not optional. <laughs> the writer of the book of Hebrews says that holiness is what God is pleased with, and without it, no one shall see the Lord. Holiness of life. God is going to begin a process of after your justification, of doing a work inside of you, of sanctification and holiness that will set you apart. And a lot of us don't like that being set apart. But to be honest with you, if we don't at least feel the weight of that, we're not going to be honest with Christianity, which brings me to my second implication. Look, for many of us, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, hmm, but Les, you don't understand how strangled I feel by sin. You don't understand the power and how many times I've told myself that this semester it's going to be different. You don't understand how many times I've made promises to God only to have them fast broken. And we look and think that there is no saying no to temptation. 
But look, if Romans 6 is true, then that is the very lie that has to be addressed. We get confused when we fail and we think to ourselves, well, that must mean that I'm not really in with God. But look, if I wanted to sabotage your program of becoming a new person, of getting a new life, that is exactly what I would do. In other words, I would get you to constantly question whether you were in or not. Because as long as you were, you would be thinking that your salvation had something to do with you. And Paul went through three chapters trying to tell you that you couldn't do anything about it. Then all of a sudden he introduced a salvation that was totally by grace. And we looked at that and thought, oh, how novel. I need to think that through. No, you need that like you need air. Because without it, there'll be no holiness. Without it, there'll be no internal transformation, no change. Third implication, and we'll finish with this. This sets the stage for how Christians deal with temptation. Now, this is a topic that we're going to deal with much greater, uh, in much greater detail next week. So I'd invite you back next week to look at chapter 7, which for a lot of people uh, uh, blows them away. They're not expecting it. But look, how do I deal with temptation? How do I make it through this struggle? Well, suffice to say, we don't get through the struggle by using guilt. As if, you know, when I do something wrong, if I just feel really, really badder, longer, then maybe the, the, the negative incentive will keep me from doing it again. Whew. I bet you there's a lot of people that can say, yeah, I've been trying that. It ain't working. Secondly, we're not going to use gimmickry, little gimmicks, you know, the little things, little, you know, the three easy steps to a holy life. Have you all read this book? Oh my gosh, this book is the best ever. I read it. Nothing was... Th- we all look for gimmicks, the instant sort of quick check. That's not the way in which God produces holiness. You know what we start? The Bible looks and says the way in which we become holy is we start asking questions about who we are. Folks, the struggle for temptation in the Bible's terms is an identity question. It's getting you to look and say, wait a minute, you are basing your life off of something now. Start with that level first. And what it does is it changes the tenor of the whole discussion. Best example I can come up with, and I actually got a couple more that I'm going to share with you next week. But was, was what happened with me when I was in high school. When I was in high school, we found a, a wonderful activity that I do not commend. This is not a story to commend to you. <laughs> okay. But we found great delight in going what we refer to as biscuit doughing, okay? Uh, biscuit dough is fairly cheap uh, kind of thing. And the beautiful thing about biscuit dough is, is it's got this sort of sticky tacky thing that when you throw it at an oncoming car, <clears throat> makes this tremendously loud splat noise, right? But it's nowhere near as destructive as something like an egg, you know, which chips people's paint. With the biscuit dough, you just peel it off, no harm done. We all had, you know, tee hee hee. <laughs> we all had a good time, right? Well, needless to say, uh, we, we all, we had a great time. We actually were in a friend's, I'm not making this up, in a friend's old station wagons. Anybody remember the old station wagons? I'm talking wood paneling on the sides and everything. And the cool sort of curved tailgate in the back where you could sit up on the tailgate and hold on to the luggage rack on top of the roof. And I mean, you were poised and ready to pound those oncoming cars with that biscuit dough. <sighs> Sorry. I get lost in the fun of those moments. Well, of course, we ended up hitting an undercover cop. 
and got pulled over. And of course, the first thing he said was like, I have called all of your parents. So somewhere at 2, 3 a.m., I don't remember what time it was, I go present myself to my father, uh, who was awake and waiting for me. And my father had lots of things to say to me that night, um, none of which we'll visit here. But one thing stuck with me. Because he looked at me and he said, he said, Les, you have to understand something. That when you walk out of this house, you have the same last name that I have. And the truth of the matter is, that means that you don't go out as an individual. You are someone, Les. You have a last name. You have a family. You have a reputation. And what my father was basically saying to me is, is Les, there is an identity that you are building for yourself that is a direct product of your behavior, of what you do. What story is your behavior telling of your life? Because the book of Romans is attempting to get us to look back and think in terms of justification. What am I building my life upon? What is my justification What is my identity? Where is my sense of worthiness coming from? And it's looking and saying, because anything else that you build your life on other than me is going to be fragile, it's going to waste away, and it's going to blow away, and it'll never stand. And what it's going to do is it's going to lock you up inside the basement of a tormenting master that does not have your best interest at heart. As a matter of fact, all he wants to see is you miserable. And he won't quit until he, gets, get, until he gets to that end. And Paul looks and says, no, sin will not have dominion over you. There's a new master. Why are you building your life on those things? Build it on the grace of the gospel. And you know what you'll get? You'll get a brand new life. You can consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then we want that. All of us want that. There's not a person in this room who doesn't look and say, we wish so badly that we could just start over, that it could be a fresh start for us. But what we're seeing from you in this passage is that that's altogether possible and likely because you are the kind of God who allows infinite startovers. Even tonight, Lord Jesus, you are the God who looks and says, I am the start over God. I come to give you a new life. Lord Jesus, would you by your Holy Spirit convince the skeptical in this room, convince those who still for some reason feel such a pull back into the basement, back into the darkness, back into the pain, back into the guilt. Would you somehow convince them that you don't function on the basis of those kinds of things? Convince us, Father, of sin, but convince us of righteousness. And in so doing, raise up a people of holiness who might call the rest of the world back to obedience, the obedience of faith, so that we might worship you rightly. Would you do that? Lord Jesus, we so desperately need it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.